We are in the midst of a spiritual warfare series, Standing Strong, and uh, we're, we're uh, yet approaching this from the beginning of the book of, of Ephesians. We are moving quickly through Ephesians in the early chapters, and we will slow down considerably once we get to chapter 6. But, but early on, we're, we're laying some foundation because st- how can we stand? What ground do we have upon which we can stand? And that was Ephesians chapter 1, that, that, that God has raised us up in Christ, that he has, he has given us a new standing, he has given us a new identity in Jesus And that we can stand in that new identity in Christ, and not only that, but by his power which works in us. That was all in Ephesians chapter 1. We know who we are, who we are in Christ, so that we can stand against the enemy. Uh, There's a standing that God has given us. And then in chapter 2, we we, we build on that foundation because one of the aspects of warfare is a propaganda war. One of the aspects of warfare is lies that are told which will inhibit, which will get in the way of our ability to stand and to fight and to resist the enemy, to stand firm. Those lies we are told that echo around in our head, that we need to be able to confront those lies, to deny those lies with truth. And, and that's what we're going to be doing in Ephesians 2 today. Ephesians 2 gives us some foundational truth that answers some of the classic lies which our enemy will bombard us with. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that though we walk in the flesh, and we have our weakness here, we walk in the flesh, but we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What kind of strongholds? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there is a a war that goes on within our minds. There is a war that goes on within our thoughts where opinions are cast around. Opinions are lobbed like hand grenades. And uh, there are accusations and there are whisperings that are murmured against you that the enemy would use to weaken your ability to stand. So Ephesians chapter 2, what I want, how I want us to approach this chapter is to deny those lies. We want to confront them head on. We want to acknowledge, in some sense, the truth of the accusations. Because in acknowledging the truth and then affirming the response, that's where the sting of those lies, those opinion or, or uh, haunting hand grenades within our head, uh, that, that's where they lose their power. So in Ephesians chapter 2, in fact, in the book of Revelation chapter 12, speaking of the enemy as the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a big celebration in heaven because, let me pick it up in verse 10, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have overcome him. How have they overcome him? By the blood of the lamb for them and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. They stood in two places. They stood on the blood of the lamb, Christ's death for them in their place and of the testimony of their faith in Christ 
saved by his grace. That's the answer to the enemy's lies. And that's what Paul is giving this church, this church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. This is a church that is in the midst of a, of a very spiritually dark place. These are things that Paul has taught them already. But as he urges them, as he concludes the book, urging them to stand firm, he, he, has, he does so having already laid or relayed or reminded them again of this critical foundation of what God has done for them in Christ, chapter 1, and how they have laid hold of that and how that has changed everything in terms of who they are and how they stand in God's presence fully accepted by him. Things that the enemy would want to cause them to doubt. I'm going to move these because that is sinking further and further. Let's come right back. There we are. Ephesians chapter 2. Let me begin reading and then we'll pause. Just the first couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, the things that you do, it's all very complicated, really. You're wondering, well, who's really doing what I'm doing? Is it me doing these things just all and of myself? I'm just operating clearly out of my free will? And these things that the enemy would point out, you see, look what you do. You see, I, I, I see, you know what you do. Look at what you do. Or maybe I could stand back and say, wait, 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 wait a minute. The devil made me do it. It wasn't really me. Well, what is this? What is going on with these things that I do that the accuser would point out and say, see, uh-huh, look at you. That's who you really are. Let's unpack that just a little bit. There's kind of a circular thing going on in Ephesians chapter 2. First of all, it says, in which you once walked. The things that you do. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. These are things that you do, right? But it's not just you independently doing. You know, you're carried along. You're, part of, you're in the midst of a current. And if you do nothing about it, you'll be simply carried along by that current. That current of culture and society and the world around you, which is arrayed in godless ways against you. And those godless ways are sometimes very nice and well-behaved. By godless, I don't mean inherently immoral. I mean godless in the sense of leaving God completely out of the picture. As if we can live our own lives for ourselves, for the better, and be good, but without reference to God at all. So we, we walk in these things. These are things we do, and yet we do them following the way of the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, where does the world get its ideas from? Is it just kind of just how humanity and society evolves, or is there something more than that? Well, Paul says that as we follow the course of this world, we are following the prince of the power of the air. We are following the prince of the power of the air. He is influencing this whole direction of the world against and contrary to God or completely ignoring God and going our own way apart from him. It stems out of the lie in the garden. Has God really said, well, you know, God's withholding from you. God knows if you take that fruit, you'll notice you'll be just like God's, knowing good and evil. See, God's holding out on you. There is a better path for you if you go your own way instead of God's way. See, that, is, that is the way of the world, but that is a way of the world that it was whispered by the enemy himself. And that pattern com, uh, continues. So you, we do these things that we do, and yet we do these things that we do as we're carried on by, by a world system, and yet that world system is being following the prince of the power of the air who works in the sons of disobedience. So the enemy is actually active individually as well as on a larger 
more worldly society, cultural scale. The, the enemy attacks our minds, both from the culture around us as well as individually among ourselves. Why do I do what I do? I have it in me. My sinful flesh, my natural humanity, and also there is an enemy that encourages me, that entices me along, to put it simply. You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying about the desires of our own bodies and our own minds, and were by nature children of wrath, even like the rest of humanity. That's our story. It's not a song, that's our story. That's where we come from. And first of all, the enemy will keep reminding you of that. He will keep pointing that out, except he will not put it in the past tense. He'll put it in the present. He says, that's who you really are. Look at the things you do. See what? That, that's just like this. Who do you think you are? And that's where verse 4 comes in. We were children of wrath, like the rest of humanity, but God. But God has changed that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, going contrary to God's word, trespassing, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That echoes back to chapter 1, doesn't it? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not because we deserve it, but because we don't. So that confronts the first lie. You see, God's grace is grace. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. It is unmerited or unearned, undeserved favor with God. Right standing with God that we don't deserve, but God gives us for us because we desperately need it, and he gives it through Christ. That's why somebody has developed grace as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. God has done this. Grace is rightly getting what you don't deserve. The enemy would say, you, just, you, you should get what you deserve. The enemy would say, you're supposed to get what you deserve. And you would respond, I don't want what I deserve. And God has not, God doesn't function that way. God does not give me what I deserve. God has given me in Christ what I never could deserve. And that's where I'll stand. So when you point out the things that I do, when you point out accusations against me, I can, I can, I can agree with those as much as they're true. All the things you say about me that you know I did, I can say, yes, I did all of those things. In fact, there's a couple you've left out, but that's okay. Because Jesus died for all of it. It's all been paid in full. My, it, grace is not something that I don't really deserve. Grace is rightly getting what I don't deserve. And I can, I'll, I'll happily live there. I don't have to try to deserve it. So the enemy pointed out that I don't deserve it? Well, there's no traction there. There's no gain there. Th that can't be used against me because I never claimed to deserve it. Or if I did, I'll drop that line. That dog won't hunt. But Christ claimed me. 
You see, it takes away the enemy's accusation. You're not a real Christian. Look at the things you do. Salvation by grace is not based on the things that I do. Salvation by grace is based on the things that Christ has done for me. It's not what I do. It's what Christ has done. And God yet is still doing his good work in me. How does this play out? Guilt upon you for the things that you do or the things that you don't do, the ways that you don't measure up. This is Mother's Day, right? So how in the midst of Ephesians chapter 2 do we, do we talk about moms? How about mom's guilt? Is there any of that in the room? Is any of that for, for the things that you wish you'd done better? And if only you as moms had done this or that better, well, the kids would have been okay. And the mistakes that they make, the, the errors that they take, the paths that they choose, if I had been a better mom, they wouldn't have done that. And they would have saved them and me all this heartbreak, Right? Wrong. Guess what? They take those paths because they're dirty, rotten sinners, just like me and just like you. And yet, that's where God's grace meets them. We want to be, we pray for our parents. We want to help them. We want to come around them as a church family. We want to be the best parenting that we can, and that will not guarantee results. Perfect, uh, you could have a new, this is kind of a financial thing, but you could revise it a little bit. Perfect parenting does not guarantee future results. It doesn't, I'm sorry. How do I know that for sure? Go all the way back. Somebody told me years ago, if you don't understand something in the Bible, just back up a little bit. You don't understand it, just back up a little bit. If you back up all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, you find there's these, there's a sweet young couple, and they're in, in this resort place. It's a beautiful place, lovely garden, and there's just the two of them. And it's wonderful. It could have been. And yet, they chose very poorly, didn't they? They chose so destructively that it ruined their family tree. And yet, those two had a perfect parent. They could not say, if only God had parented us better, if only our father had been a better father, we would not have made the mess that we made. That wasn't the point at all. So moms, don't take that guilt upon yourself. Just, just leave it right there with the kids. Well, no, no, don't just leave it right there with the kids. Be sure they know where to take it, right? And that is, I, I, I can own everything that I've done. I can say I've done all of that, and that's why Jesus died for me. And I stand in his grace. It's not a matter of what I deserve. It's, not a, it's rightly getting what I don't deserve. There is no guilt. The sting of the guilt has been, has been separated. And this is the difference between sorrow that leads to repentance. You see, there's a conscience. The Holy Spirit will confront us and convict us. And he will say, Bob, you shouldn't have been there. Bob, you shouldn't have done that. Bob, what were you thinking? Sometimes the Holy Spirit yells at me. He does. But that's a, that, that is, is a godly sorrow leading to repentance. That's the spirit grabbing hold of me and pulling me back in. Whereas the enemy's guilt is a guilt that pushes me away from God. So ask yourself, this voice that's in your head that's reminding you of that thing that you've done, is this a voice that is pushing you away from God or is this a voice that is calling you to confess? You say, well, I'm not sure. Well, confess. Say, I did that. And I need, I claim God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ right here, right now for that. And all of a sudden the sting of it is gone. And it's on that basis I'm right back in the midst of God's presence. You see, the enemy will whisper a lie in your head. 
a lie you need to deny that says you're not good enough. Well, if you think about yourself, if you, if you, if you overanalyze that one, what will you conclude? I'm not good enough. No, I don't mean me, I mean you. I'm, I'm quite sure I'm good enough. You see, that's the way it works, isn't it? This is something that, that causes guilt within ourselves. This is something that causes us to look differently upon others. You see, the, the reality of grace, that's of grace, that it's not of works, works for me and it works for everybody else equally as well. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. No one can say, yeah, <laughs> I made it. I worked hard and I pulled through. I made it all the way to heaven. It was hard work, but I got there. No one is going to be making that boast in heaven. Anybody that would will not have gotten there. Because the only way we get there is through faith in Jesus Christ. It is by faith, by grace through faith. It is not of works. But that grace through faith, what does that mean? The only thing I do is receive. God has given this forgiveness, this salvation, this right standing with God. He's wrapped it all up and he's handed it for me. All I have to do is, is receive it. All I have to do is say, yes, God, I believe you. I, tr- I, I believe what you have said, that Jesus for me is all that I need. When I, reach, when I simply believe, trust God, accept his gift, that's my only part. I don't have to be good enough. It's kind of like your Mother's Day gifts today. You've, you've, you've worked that through, I hope. Okay, we're scrambling after church. We're still going to finish that before, you know, okay, we, we've still got a little bit of time. Mom didn't have to deserve that. I know she does. I'm going to get all messed up here. But, but mom doesn't deserve that gift. You give it and she receives it. Right? A gift is freely given. That's, and our part is only to receive. God's gift, it's received. We receive it. That's our only part. It's not of any works so that none of us can boast. For we, in fact, are God's work. We are his workmanship. We are God's project. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has already laid out before ordained, it says, so that we could walk in them. I think of this in terms of the car care clinic yesterday. You guys got together. I showed up. I, I got to eat a donut and talk to some people. I really didn't do any work because they had the work covered. It reminded me of something that we've said about our men's ministry. Our men's ministry is, is God's workmanship for God's work. That God is doing his work in these men. He is shaping and molding and transforming these men uh, that they give themselves away for the sake of others. They are used by God to do God's work right here in the midst of our community, serving others. In Christ's name. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful model. And that's what God is doing with each and every one of us. It's not a matter of, am I good enough? Am I good enough to change oil? See, I don't think any of the guys actually thought about it that way. Am I good enough to get all dirty changing oil and rolling around on a rainy, on a rainy morning out here in the back parking lot? Yeah, you're good enough for that. You're good enough for whatever God calls you to because he has made you good enough in Jesus. You see, that's where our standing comes from. We can easily think of this, somebody's not good enough, or maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm good enough to, to be saved. I'm good enough to get into heaven, but I'm not good enough really to be used by God. No, that's, that's on him. It says we are his workmanship, that God is shaping us. In fact, that workmanship, that's a, that's a, a word that means a, a masterpiece, a greatest work, an opus, an epic, an epic poem or an epic novel. This is a big deal what God is doing in you. 
You are God's greatest works. Think of it that way. He is doing his greatest work in this transforming by his grace within the church for his glory. It's all him. And we just yield. Okay, God, I yield to you. I receive your salvation. Okay, God, what would you have me to do? I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. I'm in your hands, God. How would you direct me? And it's not a matter of me not being worthy for that. The enemy will whisper in your your ear, troubles are going to come. You're going to get what you deserve. Troubles are going to come so that God will, through these troubles, make you worthy of his grace. That's a lie. I cannot be worthy of his grace. I don't need to be worthy of his grace. Jesus is worthy for me. That's the whole point. That's our standing. And Paul spends a whole chapter doing this because these are lies that echo around. These are those thoughts. These are those strongholds that are in our heads. These are what keep us at some distance from God. Because we might accept on the surface, in our, in our heads, intellectually, okay, I get it. God's word says that I'm saved, but I can't get over the emotional impact and holding me back of who I think that I am. So I think I'm saved, but I don't really belong. So thirdly, I, wanna, I want us to, I'm going to encourage you to deny the lie that you don't really belong with God's redeemed. I'm saved, but I'm at the back. I'm saved, but from a safe distance. Let me read from verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, and as I read this, think, think of a Jewish context. Think of Jerusalem. Think of a temple. And in that temple, at the outer courtyard, there is this wall across the outer courtyard. So that farthest away from the temple, that's as close as most people could ever get. If you were not an Israelite, if you wanted to worship the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you were not an Israelite, you could not get past that first barrier wall. You would be killed if you tried to cross that wall. And then inside there's the court of the women, and then there's the court of the men getting closer, but then there's the courtyard where only the priests could go. And then into the temple itself, only the priests who were selected for that task. And inside the very center, the core of the temple, where God's presence actually dwelt in the Holy of Holies, one priest once a year. So the temple was actually served in some ways as a wall, a barrier to protect humanity from the holiness of God. Now, with that in mind, uh, I want you to pay attention to what Paul writes about these these dividing walls. And this temple imagery is in mind here. He says, therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles or the nations, in terms of the flesh, your humanity, you were called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, Israel, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, this is what you were, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, the identity as a nation of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise which God's had made through Abraham to his descendants. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Who's the both one? The, 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 uh, the Israel and the nations have been brought together. The, the dividing wall 
of hostility has been broken down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing any hostility. There is no hostility between one and another of us, and there is no hostility between us and God. Christ is our peace. He has created for us peace with God, and in that he also has created for us a peace and a belonging one with another. It has been said that it is all level ground at the cross. There is not different standing. There is not different elevation for one person or another. But we stand on the same level ground at the base of the cross. And he came and proclaimed this peace to, you, peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, you have access. So you are no longer strangers, aliens, outcasts. You are fellow citizens with the saints and you are members of the household or family of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom that whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple. What God is doing with his church, what God is doing with, with those who believe in Jesus from every tribe and nation, from all peoples around the world who have very little themselves in common except all of Jesus in common. He is joining them together into one grand and glorious temple, which is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Remember that old temple? God has built a new one. And he's built it out of you and I. It's not that, is this a temple that we can have access to? It's a temple that he is making out of us that we are his dwelling place. Tell me if you belong there. Do you belong? It's by Jesus. It's not by what we deserve. It's not by what we earn. It's not a matter of where do I fit in the ranking and stacking. Do I really belong here or not? If nobody gets into heaven, barely. Nobody gets into God's presence. Nobody has standing before God just barely. If you have access before God, if you, if you can be embraced in his presence at all, it's fully and abundantly and glorious in the same standing as Jesus because that's how God has received you. It's through him. The lie is you're not close to God. You're merely on the fringes. It's kind of like in church. Now I'm going to pick on the back row for a minute. It's not because you folks are sitting in the back row. okay? But imagine you're going to a Seahawks game. And you have got great seats. I mean, these seats are awesome seats. You can see everything from here. I mean, these seats, from these seats, you can, you can look out and you can see the whole downtown skyline. You can see the, you can see the Space Needle. From these seats, you can see the, the Olympics and the Cascade. You can see everything from these seats. And these seats are so great that if you look real close, down there somewhere, there's a football field. It'd be nice to be a little closer to that football field. But these seats are great. These seats are okay. And, you know, those seats down close, those, those seats are for better people. Those seats are for people that really can have those seats. You know, I could never have those seats. Me, I'm okay back here. I'm okay in the back. That's how it works at a Seahawks game. Lots of people get those great seats where you can see everything it's only a few people, it's only really privileged people that get those seats down close. You know, where you can also get wet from a Gatorade splash too. That's, that's only for a few people. That's not for most of us. But God's church is different. And so it's different here. 
This is the only place where you can freely move from the back row to the front row and no ushers will stop you. And that's true in the church because that's true in our acceptance before God. No, you're not on the fringes. You're not in this basis, well, yeah, but I know, you don't know about me what I know about me, and I'm really just not worthy of being closer to God in his presence. You know, maybe someday I get this all sorted out. You know, Lord, I'd like to come closer to you. I'd like to be near to, near to you. I'd like to upgrade my seat. I'd like to get a little closer, but, you know, I, I've got all this stuff, and I'm going to work through this stuff, and I'm going to get all this cleared out of the way so that then all this won't be between us so that we could be together. That's kind of how we look at it. I don't really belong in God's presence just yet. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to try to get that cleaned up, and you're going to have all kinds of things that keep echoing into your head about all the ways that you're not worthy now, and you know, along the way, you never will be, unless our access into the presence of God is by Jesus himself. And you know, that, that's what's going on here. It's not a matter of, oh, I'm going to get all this stuff worked out, Lord, so I can be with you. Jesus is actually here with me, and he says, okay, Bob, come on. We're going we're gonna to walk through all this. We're going to get through all of this. We're going to go where I have intended for you to go. And we're going to go through this. You're not going to come to me through this. I'm going to bring you through this, you and I together. Because we are in him. He is our peace. He has moved everything out of the way. There is nothing in the way of our access into the very presence of God. Think, interesting what that means then in terms of well, for me and my access, and it's not, it's not a matter of me being unworthy, and it's not a matter of anybody else being unworthy. The enemy will use this lie against us in a couple of ways. He'll use it against us for ourselves. He'll use it against us concerning others. Imagine that. God has done this amazing thing that fits us for heaven in Jesus, that fits us, making me fit for the very presence of God, and yet he, the enemy would twist that and pervert that, that others are not quite there, that others are not quite worthy, that others have got to get some things cleaned up before they could be there too, and he has made this wonderful grace of Jesus, he has made it the thing that doesn't quite smell very good to others. It has taken a bit of a rot upon it, it's gone off a little bit. This beautiful thing called grace that we so gratefully claim for ourselves and yet can come with a whiff of an odor toward others that we are somehow made better than them. And that denies God's grace. So the enemy would love nothing better than to twist up the church and to make us odious toward others by some sense of superiority or moral goodness that we are better than others when the very notion of grace is that God has done this for me. Look what God has done. So what we do in denying these lies, it, it, it breathes a new freedom. It breathes the new humility of the church that can come alongside anybody else because you are in the same standing as I. And I would love to share with you what it is that God has done for me in Christ. Because what he's done for me, he'll do for you. Because that's, that's who my God is. It's not a basis of me being good enough. It's not a basis of me earning it. You know, the enemy would echo around this lie in my head 
And I learned first hour, somebody helped me with this. This is an old Linda Ronstad tune. You're no good, you're no good, you're no good, baby, you're no good. Have you heard that? I don't mean on the radio, I mean in here. Have you heard that? How do you answer that lie by God's grace? I think it goes something like this. It's all gone. It's all gone. It's all gone. Jesus, it's all gone. Remember the song. I think it comes next. Come on, sing it again. It's all gone. No, I mean you. You, you. Come on, join me. (laughs) It's all gone. It's all gone. It's all gone. In Jesus, it's all gone. And it is. In his grace, he is our peace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that we were not worthy for salvation, but you have saved us. We thank you, Father, that we're not worthy of being used by you, and yet you use us. Father, that who are we? Who are we to claim access before you. Who are we to claim any privilege and yet you have given us that access. You have brought us near by the blood of Jesus. Father, would you reinforce that in our own thinking? Would you protect us from the lies of the enemy? We would think we need to be worthy before we can enjoy relationship with you. Father, would you protect us from the lie as well that some others may not be as worthy as we. Father, those come from the pit of hell where the enemy himself would presume himself to be more worthy than God and would spread that lie to us. Father, would you strengthen us to stand by your grace against the enemy's lies? Father, would you then take our lives that we would lay before you Father, if you would use them by your grace, Father, would you do that? Lord, that you would help us to see what is the next step that I can take in walking with you as my God and Savior. Father, would you take these gifts, these offerings of our hand, not because we would give anything to to earn some favor before you, not that we give anything out of return obligation, because God has saved me, I have to now pay the bills. But Lord, would you use what we would give freely and gratefully? Would you, in your grace, use this expression of our lives to tell others of your grace? Lord, both in this community and around the world, would you use what we have, our own lives, for your story, for your grace? We pray it in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, amen.